Innocence Advocate, Stephen Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode four, The Arrest. Last week, I covered how Stephen became a suspect, which included the perspective of Kristen's friends and the detective's first conversation with Stephen. And I also went into detail regarding his alibi. This week, we are diving into Stephen's arrest, which is shocking to almost every person I tell this story to. On the night of Tuesday, October 9th, 2001, I was sleeping peacefully in my bed. I awoke the next day and went to school just like my siblings. My parents went to work. The day was normal. But when I got home from school, I would quickly learn that it was no longer going to be normal. When I walked in the front door, my dad's face told me that something serious had happened. Now I, like the rest of the world, was still grappling with the emotional impact of September 11th, which had just happened the month before. I was still confused about so many things that were happening in the world around me. When I saw my dad's face and the way that he sat me down, I thought, here we go again, the worst of the worst. But even in those imaginings, I was never going to be prepared for what he told me. Uncle Stephen had been arrested for Kristen's murder. I don't even know if his words registered right away, but I can tell you that my first reaction was fear, fear for my uncle, fear for how he was doing in his already fragile state. I had so many questions about his well-being, how he was coping. It took a minute for the shock of the actual news to sink in and then disbelief settled. It was already concluded in my mind that there was simply no way that everything would be cleared up soon and everything would go back to normal. And my dad shared those sentiments with me, agreeing this was all a misunderstanding, but it just got worse. My grandparents not only wrote a very detailed letter to explain Stephen's alibi, but they also have a combination of his account and their account from the night of October 9th, 2001 and the early morning hours of October 10th, 2001, a night that would forever change my family. This is what they had to say in the details surrounding Stephen's arrest. The following is a true account of the events with respect to the arrest of my son, Stephen Manolis, on October 10th, 2001. On the evening of October 9th, 2001, my wife and I retired to our bedroom at about 11 p.m. My son, Stephen, was in his bedroom as he had just assisted, as he always did, my wife in climbing the stairs. We always leave our bedroom door open in the event it is necessary to call for Stephen's assistance, as I have Parkinson's and my wife has a problem with her knees, which sometimes give away on her. I was sitting up in bed listening to the radio at a low volume so as not to disturb my wife as I do every night. I heard the side door downstairs open, as it is right underneath our room, and heard a peculiar moaning sound. I got out of bed slowly because of my Parkinson's, went over to the window directly over the side door. I opened the window and looked down. It was very dark and I could see a flashlight playing back and forth over the ground. I called out, Steve, is that you? There was no response. It was not like Stephen not to answer. The light immediately turned off. I then shouted in a loud voice, who is down there? There was no response. I then called to my wife and told her something strange was going on downstairs. With my wife's assistance, I got dressed and we both went downstairs. We found the front door locked and the side door slightly open. We looked around and Stephen was not in the house. We looked outside on the grounds around the house and he was not there either. We waited a few minutes to see if he would show up. When he did not, we got in our car to see if we could find him. We proceeded down the driveway and stopped to allow a police car to pass our home going westbound. We then proceeded eastbound on Cedar Road. Another vehicle began to follow close behind us. We made a right turn on Newark Street. The vehicle was still behind us. We made another right turn on Shelby Lane and proceeded westbound. We reached Elwood Road and made a left turn. The vehicle was still behind us. 
After a few hundred feet, roof lights of the vehicle were turned on and we could see it was a police car, so we stopped. The officer walked over to our car and shined his flashlight on the back seat and then in our faces. He gave no reason for stopping us and said to my wife, can I see your driver's license? It will only take a minute. While fumbling for her license in his purse, he asked, do you have a license? And her reply was, of course I do. She then produced it for inspection. We were then allowed to proceed. By this time, my wife had a headache and we proceeded to an all-night supermarket for some aspirin. We then returned home. Stephen was not home yet. We waited until early morning and called our son, George, who was a sergeant in a correctional facility for advice. He told us to immediately go to our local police station and ask to speak to a detective. As we were about to get into our car, I noticed Stephen's sandals were neatly placed one on top of the other on the front lawn. We proceeded to the police station and told two detectives that our son was missing. We asked them whether or not they knew anything about it or where he was. They answered no, but let me make a phone call, and they left. When they returned, they told us go straight home, that there were two homicide detectives waiting for us on the driveway. We immediately raced home, thinking our son Stephen had been struck by a car or that our neighbor, Victor Scarabelli, had carried out his threat that he would put a bullet in Stephen's head, which he made on September 21st, 2001. When we arrived home, we were told that Stephen had been arrested the night before. We later learned that two nearby streetlights were shut down by LIPA the night of the arrest, presumably by order of the police. This explains why it was so dark around our house. The side door referenced in the letter, which was slightly open, also was displayed in a photograph to have the inside curtain rod and curtain pulled down. Because of this, it seemed as though Stephen had made it inside the house before his arrest, or he had at least crossed slightly into the house before being pulled back out. Now, if that were true, there would be serious cause for concern regarding the legality of his arrest. My grandparents continued their letter with the information that Stephen told them when they were finally able to speak to him after his arrest. This is what they reported. Stephen told us that he had gone downstairs that night to the kitchen for a snack since he had had an early dinner. He said he saw a prowler running across the lawn. He went out the front door and there was more than one. He chased them away, ran back into the house and locked the front door and went to lock the side door when suddenly several men came to the side door, grabbed the screen door, Stephen pushed the screen door to release their hold, and they fell over a pool vacuum pole, which was lying on the ground. Other men grabbed the side door when one of them put his foot and hands into the house to keep the door from closing, then grabbed Stephen by the shirt, tearing it as they dragged him from the house, Stephen's pants caught on the strike plate, tearing his trousers open as they pulled him out the door. He lost his sandals. By the time they reached the front lawn, a white van pulled up and Stephen said what he heard, one man say, shut up and let's get out of here. Someone is coming. They tried to put gauze in his mouth, but he spit it out. Once in the van, they handcuffed him and drove away without ever stopping until they reached Yapink. All the way to Yapink, they put a sweater over Stephen's face and stomped on his face and head. They told him, we are the mafia. Your next door neighbor, Victor Scarabelli, sent us to kill you and dump you in a river in Brooklyn. They also threatened to throw him out of the moving van while speeding. The men were dressed shabbily. At no time did they ever say they were the police. My grandparents were appalled by Stephen's recounting of the night's events and everyone they told, even people I told about what happened that night, were in disbelief of the possibility that he was treated this way. It felt like it was hard for people to believe this and that they just viewed us as disgruntled family members. However, a closer look at reports regarding conduct in Suffolk County demonstrate that Suffolk County is notorious for such serious actions. Stephen is certainly not the only one who has reported the police brutality used in this county. 
Investigative journalists and reporters for Newsday and the New York Times have been writing about such corruption in Suffolk County since the late 70s and early 80s. Books like Jimmy the King by Gus Garcia Roberts and A Whistleblower's Lament by retired Judge Stuart Nam really show how incredibly corrupt this county is, especially the homicide detectives and the district attorney's office. In fact, the DA during Stevens' ordeal, the one who denied some of my family's complaints, is currently behind bars himself, and the former police chief was also imprisoned. If you were to read Jimmy the King, which was published recently, I believe in 2022, you would see several other individuals reported that the police used phone books to beat them while they were in questioning. And this is actually something that Stephen reported himself to the hospital staff when he had to explain his post-arrest injuries. This county has been investigated by several organizations over the years, and the findings always indicate coerced confessions and dubious police tactics. But because of powerful people and maybe even fear, they continue to get away with it. Stephen's story is one of many similar instances of such actions. Stephen's attorney filed pretrial motions for both Peyton and Dunaway hearings. Peyton versus New York established the need for police to have an arrest warrant in order to enter someone's home for an arrest. And Dunaway versus New York established that the statements made after an arrest with no probable cause violated the Fourth Amendment. Both hearing requests were granted. The police did not have an arrest warrant, and they never tried to file for one at any time during the five and a half years between Kristen's death and Stephen's arrest. And we will talk about that more in a few minutes. So the lack of probable cause in both the arrest warrant and the statements made thereafter were not the only issues that Stephen's lawyer filed in the motion. He also believed that the application for the search warrant was insufficient. He submitted that the probable cause for Stephen to have committed the crime wasn't demonstrated, Therefore, so too was the lack of probable cause that evidence of such a crime would be found in the home. The application for the search warrant relied on hearsay by Detective Pierce. He was a profile that stated, in his opinion, Stephen was the killer. He stated that he believed Stephen fit the classic profile of a stalker, and therefore he would be likely to retain photos, articles, or other documentation of the victim. And because of this, the search warrant authorized the seizure of photographs, articles, anything that would be related to the victim in that regard. None of these items were found, thereby refuting the conclusions drawn by the profiler. Now, the judge agreed that more information was needed to be addressed, so the Payton and Dunaway hearings were granted. However, the judge believed that enough probable cause existed to maintain that if the list of property was seized, it would provide evidence that Stephen participated in the crime. And the judge said in his conclusion that even though no such items were found, he felt that it didn't nullify their initial reasoning. I really had to take pause when reading the profiler's opinion that Stephen fit the classic profile of a stalker. That phrase, stalker, was used several times. Words have power. That's why they're used in headlines and clickbait. Strong words grab attention. But we have to be careful because those words instantly paint a picture and oftentimes that picture is not accurate. Stephen never left his home, but every time they used this label, it made it seem like he followed Kristen, that he was only ever looking at her, that he was watching her, but he stared out his window at everyone. Even her friends said he would just be staring at whoever was outside. He was just watching the neighborhood. So that label really puts me off. 
The media called him a stalker, which just isn't true. And it's almost ridiculous because that means anytime you or I look out the window, we're also being stalkers. It just isn't an accurate assessment of behavior. If the police truly had enough probable cause for a search warrant, why did they choose not to obtain an arrest warrant as well? The answer to that question is not only shocking, but clearly stated within their own testimonies. I'm about to go into Stephen's arrest, and it's hard for me to put into words sometimes how infuriating this is for my family and even more so for Stephen. For me, not even as a family member, but as a person who lives in this society, Stephen's arrest is jarring. And the fact that these actions can happen and they're legal and they're openly talked about in trial is honestly concerning to me. Growing up, I heard these details as they were thrown out in conversation, and I would always ask my dad questions, but I thought I would actually see a different story when I read through the transcripts. I thought, maybe my family has it wrong, or not wrong, but they're just maybe blinded by some of their emotions about his arrest. But no, the things they told me were there, clear as day, in the transcripts. I already shared my grandparents' account from the night and also what Stephen reported to them, but let's look at what the detectives had to say during trial regarding Stephen's arrest. The following information is the detective's account of the arrest. And according to them, on the evening of October 9th, 2001, a team of 14 detectives met at police headquarters to establish the plan to arrest Stephen. This team was led by Detective Sergeant Doyle. A detailed plan was put into place and the 14 members were given specific assignments and locations on and near Cedar Road. The Long Island Power Authority was instructed by the police to turn off the streetlights by Stevens' home, resulting in one detective being given night scope vision so that she could see through the darkness. The plan was simple, hold position until Stephen was outside and far enough away from his home that he wouldn't cross back over his threshold. However, Sergeant Doyle was aware of Stephen's reclusion as he had surveyed him on multiple occasions. He understood that Stephen was unlikely to exit his home and leave the proximity of his front door. So he had another step in the plan. A retired FBI agent was tasked with affixing a blinking light into a siren box that would fit onto a telephone pole. The plan was to put the light on the pole in front of Stephen's home to lure him out and get him away from his door. Between 8.30 and 9 o'clock p.m., Detectives were in position. Some were inside the Scarabelli home, others were in surrounding backyards, hiding in bushes across the street and waiting in cars in different locations. One detective was waiting in a nearby van. That van would become Stephen's ride to the police station in Yapink. The detectives waited. As per Stephen's usual behavior, he did come out of the house a few times, but he stayed close to the front door. After approximately three hours without the movement required to initiate the arrest, Sergeant Doyle enacted the use of the blinking light. The light was affixed to the telephone pole directly in front of Stephen's home. The goal of luring this reclusive, mentally ill man out of his home was a success. Just minutes after the light was put in place, Stephen was out of his home carrying a pole to be used in knocking down the light. While he was whacking at the light, the detectives were given the signal to initiate the arrest, which they did by charging at him from different directions in the dark of night. In their account, Stephen attempted to run to his front door, but was cut off by detectives coming from the Scarabelli home. He turned and ran toward the door on the side of the house, which is where the struggle and eventual arrest occurred. He fought the detectives in his yard through the chaos of darkness, yelling, and grabbing. By their sheer force and numbers, the detectives wrestled Stephen to the ground, handcuffing him behind his back and shackling him at his ankles. He kept fighting. 
The detectives picked him up, dropping him several times on the ground before throwing him into the back of the van that was now waiting at the curb. Meanwhile, my grandparents were awake, calling out to Stephen from their upstairs bedroom. They did not receive an answer because Stephen was already in that van. While my grandparents dressed themselves and went to look for Stephen around the house and eventually around the neighborhood, he was being sat upon by detectives on the floor of a moving vehicle while he continued to profess his innocence. His arrest is frightening and confusing for the average person, but for Stephen, the situation is traumatic, triggering, and against everything that common sense would tolerate in conduct pertaining to the mentally ill. Four detectives took the stand to outline what took place at the arrest meeting, the actual arrest, and then the ride to the precinct. Four people stood as witnesses to the atrocities that took place that night. And although the detectives share a different version of events than Stephen reported, either way it is looked at, unusual means were used to get Stephen in that van. Detective Daly spent the most time on the stand in regards to the arrest because he was the only detective to testify who took place during the physical arrest and also spent 40 minutes with Stephen in the van ride to his interrogation. During Detective Daly's direct examination from the prosecution, he testified that once Stephen was taken to the ground, there was a tremendous struggle put forth. He said that Stephen kicked and flailed about with his arms and legs and that he was also biting, that he was yelling and failing to comply with the police. He said that the police told him to just stop fighting and that they continued numerous times to say that they were the police, but he continued to fight. Once in the van on the way to Yapping, Detective Daly testified that it was the same type of demeanor that Stephen just kept fighting and it didn't matter that he's handcuffed and shackled. He kept flailing, trying to use his body to push people off of him. It was at this time that officers climbed on top of him and were laying their body weight across him to prevent him from using his body as a bridge. The van that was used to transport Stephen, according to Detective Daly, was not luxurious. There were only two seats. That was the driver's seat and the front passenger seat. The rest was barren of any furnishings, although he believed there was a piece of plywood on the floor in the back of the van. The prosecutor asked Detective Daly if the behavior he had already described about Stephen had changed at any time in the course of their van ride. And he said that about 15 minutes into the ride, Stephen calmed down. And he was told numerous times that if he would calm down, nobody would be lying on top of him. He said that Stephen was complaining about not being able to breathe and that the handcuffs were hurting him but there was nothing they could do about it because of his physical resistance and his flailing about. So he said after about 15 minutes, Stephen finally calmed down. And it was at that time that he was read his constitutional rights. Detective Daly was sitting in the front passenger seat and Stephen was still on the floor in the back of the van. This detective testified that while he read Stephen his rights from the front seat, Stephen appeared to be paying attention in the back. He said that the detectives were no longer laying across his chest, but someone may have been across his lower torso or leg area. He continued to testify that he asked Stephen, do you understand each of those rights I've explained to you? And Stephen's response was yes. He was asked, do you wish to contact a lawyer? And Stephen's response was no, I didn't do anything. He was asked a third question, which was having these rights in mind, do you wish to talk to us now without a lawyer? And Stephen's answer was yes, after you loosen these fucking cuffs. According to Detective Daly, after Stephen answered each of these questions, they continued to converse. Stephen asked, where are you taking me? Why are you locking me up? Or something to that effect. 
And they answered him that it had to do with what happened back by his house five years ago. And Stephen's re response was, I didn't do anything. I'm telling you, I didn't do anything. Detective Daly also testified that he asked Stephen what he liked to be called. And he replied, Kyle Sterling. The 40 minute ride to Yapping Precinct was not recorded in any way. Therefore, we only have the testimony of Detective Daly to establish what happened in that van. After the violent and traumatic arrest, Stephen being ripped at and grabbed at and fighting and carried and dropped and thrown into a van on the floor, he's being sat on. Was he truly in his right mind to acknowledge and waive his rights? During the cross-examination of Detective Daly by Stephen's lawyer, the emphasis was obviously on what was taking place in the back of the van that had resulted in Stephen stating that he could not breathe. Stephen's lawyer wanted the detective to paint the picture for the jury so they had an accurate idea of what was going on. Essentially, he says, Stephen was face down, handcuffed behind his back, shackled at his legs with detectives lying across him. And he says to the detective, and you read him his rights? Is this a joke? Is this really what happened? This is the time that you chose to read him his rights. And the detective said that he disagreed. And he reiterated that it was 15 minutes later after he believed Stephen had calmed down that his rights were read, though someone may have still been lying across his lower torso. Stephen's arrest is not only disturbing because of the violence and the lack of care for his fragile mental state, but because the reason his arrest took place in this manner to begin with, the reason that they had to trick him out of his home was because the police chose not to get an arrest warrant. Detective Mercer was one of the lead investigators in this case, and he was present at the arrest of Stephen. He didn't participate in the physical nature of the arrest, but because he was a key player from the beginning, his testimony shed light on the arrest plan, and he was asked by the prosecutor if at any point prior to the night of the arrest, he had made an application for an arrest warrant, and Detective Mercer stated that he had not. When questioned as to why not, he testified that an arrest warrant in New York State would give Stephen an automatic right to counsel and that they would not be able to question him about this investigation. That was the reason Detective Mercer decided against obtaining an arrest warrant. And that reason was also confirmed by Sergeant Doyle, the team leader in the homicide squad. They did not want Stephen, a mentally ill recluse, to have an automatic right to counsel. They knew that he lived this way, so they purposely did this. I think they really thought they were going to be able to manipulate him into giving them what they wanted. But just because someone has an illness does not mean the police can easily get them to confess to killing someone. At the time of the trial, Sergeant Doyle, Detective Mercer, and Detective Daly had all been officers of the law for over 25 years. Stephen's lawyer asked each of them if, in all that time, any of them had ever used a similar luring tactic to bypass a warrant and arrest someone. They all answered no. The nature of Stephen's arrest has always been disturbing for my family. How should people with a mental illness be treated by police? How should they be arrested? Their actions clearly impacted Stephen not only in that moment, but in the six hours at the police headquarters that would precede it. After these events took place, was he truly in his right mind to knowingly, willingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waive his rights? Was he truly in his right mind to speak to the detectives without counsel? Stephen's mental struggles were understood by the police in this case. They were aware of his unorthodox behaviors because they observed him and they researched his background. Stephen hadn't been touched in 20 years. He had minimal verbal contact with anyone other than his immediate family. But on that night, 
10 men began running after him, grabbing at him aggressively, shackling him, handcuffing him, carrying him into a van and throwing him in the back with no seats while they continued to wrestle him, causing significant injury. Cruel and unusual means were used in order to manipulate Stephen's mental illness. The detective's actions in this instance were not only fueled by tunnel vision and a lack of training, but also by a button. Tune in next week to hear about the button, the biggest inference that the detectives and the prosecution had. It was the reason for the arrest, but it wasn't actually enough to prove any connection to the crime. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.